Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, July 18th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes the newest executive director of United Working Families, Kennedy Bartley. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, whatever you're looking for. If it's Chicago, it's at Chicago Reader. And if you're looking for more Ben Jarofsky, he's there too. Just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, B as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Mayoral Bromance Tuesday, and here's why. Because a bromance broke out this weekend, that's why. <laughs> I'm laughing now, folks, but I was crying on Saturday. Well, metaphorical tears. I was sitting around on the couch. I don't even know what I was doing, reading the newspaper, you know, thinking great thoughts. It was a Saturday. And uh, one of my dear friends a left of the lefty persuasion sent me uh, a tweet. Because, you know, I don't, I'm not on Twitter, so I'm not following Twitter. And when it was a tweet from Mayor Brandon Johnson with a feature to picture. I'm laughing now, but I'm, I was so sick to my stomach on Saturday. It was a picture of Mayor Rahm. Yes, Mayor Rahm and Mayor Brandon Johnson sitting together, engaged in the lively art of conversation, listening to each other with great passion and thought. Like, what you're saying, Mayor Rahm, is so interesting. And then uh, Brandon Johnson wrote, or somebody wrote on Mayor Mayor Brandon Johnson, I don't know if he controls his Twitter page, but it went out on his page. Met with U.S. Ambassador to Japan, former Chicago mayor at Rahm Emanuel today to discuss opportunities to grow Chicago's economy, especially emerging partnership between Japan's tech sector and our world-class universities. Thank you, Ambassador Emanuel, for your continued leadership. That was the part that really got to me. I will now read that last sentence. Thank you, Ambassador Emanuel, for your continued leadership. I read that, and I'm like, continued leadership? Mm. Like the leadership had a start, and it's continuing? Which part of what Rob did to the city of Chicago when the people of the city of Chicago so foolishly, so ignorantly elected him as their mayor, even though he knew nothing about Chicago? What part was great leadership when he closed the clinics in high crime areas where people desperately needed like some kind of relief from the stress and strains of life? Was that great leadership? Was it great leadership when he closed 50 freaking schools (laughs) after a campaign that was ginned up to pretend like we couldn't afford to keep them and then just kept them closed and shut her up, didn't convert them into community centers or anything? Was that good leadership? 
How about when he concealed evidence of murder? Remember that? Remember the name Laquan McDonald? Remember that one? Concealing evidence. Oh, he has the video, but he didn't release the video until a Cook County judge forced him to release the video in a FOIA lawsuit. Was that good leadership? And then, of course, I'll just close down with that final middle finger to the air that Rom gave the city of Chicago, taxpayers included, when he twisted the arms of those rubber stamps in the city council into approving a $1.3 billion handout to a big-time developer to gentrify an already gentrifying neighborhood. That would be Lincoln Yards. So was that part of the continued leadership as well? Me, you know, as soon as I got this thing, I texted it to like tons of people. My distinguished guest, uh, Kennedy Bartley, is on the hand listening. I did not text it to her. I would have, Kennedy. I would. I, I didn't mean to leave you out. I texted it to so many people. I it's know. okay, Ben. I got it. <laughs> She's like, you didn't text me uh, to get response. And so some of uh, uh, like Brandon's people call me back and they're like, Ben, you don't understand. This big time politics. We're playing the game. You know, folks, I got to tell you, whenever someone tells me I don't understand, I always get a little nervous. And people have been telling me I don't understand since I moved to Chicago in 1981 because I don't understand why Chicago would do the things they do. I admit, I do not understand it. So they're always explaining to me. And it's always like a young political that's explaining it to me. I could name. I'll tell you just some of the few off the top of my, and I'm doing just off the top of my mind, who have said to me, I don't understand how the game is played. Christian Mitchell, Will Burns, Amaya Pawar, am I forget? Rick Munoz, Danny Solis, all of these politicians in Chicago. Then you don't understand how the game is played. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, explain to me. Okay, help me out. Speak slow and use small words so I will understand. Imagine you're talking to a fourth grader, okay? And then I will understand how the great game of Chicago politics is being played right now. So what they're doing, okay, follow me in this, folks. They're being nice to Mayor Rahm and showering him with love in order to convince Mayor Rahm's allies in the business community, in corporate Chicago, and in editorial Chicago, not to be so mean and nasty about Brandon, not to depict Brandon as this dangerous, radical black militant, but instead to think of him as part of the larger political community that produces someone like Rom. We're all in it together. It's just like Brandon and Rom. They're all like, there's no difference. It's they're like the same. And I'm thinking, huh, that's the play. That's what you're doing. You think you're going to get one more vote in the city council for something like opening the clinics that Rom closed because you suck up to Rom? You think you're going to get one more vote in the city council because what? For, I don't know, treatment of trauma, you know, program where you instead of locking people up, you have mental health services for them. Rosanna Rodriguez's great program. You think you're going to get one more vote in the city council for that because you're sucking up to Rom? How about raising the minimum wage for restaurant workers? That's something I hear a lot about now, but lefties are pushing. You think you're going to get one more vote in the city council because you're sucking up to Rob? What do you need one more vote anyway? You need just 25 votes. 26. That's what, well, 25 to 25, and Brandon gets to, to break the tie. 
So literally, you only need 25 votes. But okay, we'll say 26 so that Brandon doesn't have to break the tie like Kamala Harris in the Senate. All right? That's it. You think, is this what's going to happen? Are they going to be nicer to you? Say nicer things about you when they're blasting, like the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage? I don't know. Is that the play? I'll tell you what Rom got out of it. Rom realized that everybody forgot his existence because he went off to Japan to be the ambassador. So he cooked up an excuse to come home to Chicago and meet with Brandon Johnson and have the mayor tweet it out. And now people are, are talking about Rom. I'm talking about I'm th- I hadn't thought about him in months. So. <laughs> he was out of sight, out of mind. My guess is, is Rom is already making his next move. My guess Rom is already figuring out his next play. Probably run for Senate. If Richard Durbin doesn't run, probably has already uh, the inside in, in scoop that Durbin won't run. Who knows? Remember, he knew that Daly wasn't going to run before any of the rest of us knew that Daly wasn't going to run. So he's already positioning himself for whatever he's going to do when he's done being ambassador, because let's face it, he's probably getting tired of being ambassador. So you helped him out. Talking about his continued leadership is just one more step in the rehabilitation tour of Rahm Emanuel as he prepares to run for office. So you gave him something very valuable, Mayor Johnson, with that tweet. I certainly hope that the people of Chicago get something in return that benefits them. All right, without any further ado, I'm going to bring on Kennedy Bartley, who has been very patiently waiting uh, the new executive director of United Working Families. Kenny, I humbly apologize for not sending you um, that uh, a, a text with a pic- picture of that tweet. Had I done that, how would you have responded? Ben, I would have said, oh, my God, Ben, you sent me what 40 other people just sent me. And that's and that's what I would have responded. And then, you know, I probably would have copied and pasted the message to you that I sent to the rest of the 40 people. Just something like, you know, Karen Lewis said you don't get to close 50 schools and not be held accountable. Right. And Karen Lewis created the conditions for Brandon Johnson to be mayor of Chicago. Um and the same, in addition to Karen Lewis, you know, the young people who were saying you will not put a cop academy um, in, in our neighborhood, you know, created the conditions for this win. And the transformative platform that Brandon ran on um, that made it so that a neoliberal like Rahm Emanuel um, didn't get to, to, to play around with the, the people's lives in our city. They don't get to close down 50 schools and half our mental health centers and, you know, build a cop academy and cover up the, the murder of a, uh, a young black kid, you know? Um, and so I, I can't speak for the mayor, you know, I can't speak for the mayor's comms team, but what I do know is that we have a mayor who, you know, sits down with everyone despite ideology. And I do believe that, you know, the decision-making is like to the end of what's best for the city. And I know that as for me and my organization and my comrades, we will continue to organize to make sure that a Rahm Emanuel um, doesn't have a platform, doesn't have power in this city um, and will meaningfully transform what Ma- Rahm Emanuel and his predecessors did um, to create the conditions that drives 100,000 Black people out of the city, 
right? And create the conditions where we're constantly surveilled and experiencing, you know, state violence and don't have the mental health, access to the mental health uh, care as a result of the same guy who's creating the conditions that we need to be, you know, receiving mental health care for um, closing down those, those, uh, those centers and facilities. And so, you know, it is a, a long, it's going to be a long march through the institutions towards transformation. Um, I, I think that we have to be clear about the function of the seat. Um, I think that as we are closer to governing power, we have to be clear about the fact that our relationship will be contentious because what we're trying to do is create an anti-capitalist, not, you know, anti-racist, uh, anti pro-immigrant, pro-worker, pro-child, ch pro-Black, you know, city, whilst using the very institution that is capitalist, anti-Black, you know, anti-immigrant, xenophobic. And so we, I, I do think that we have to be realistic about, you know, the conditions that we are organizing within. Um, but again, you know, I can't, I can't speak for the mayor. I do know, though, that he comes from the tradition of Karen Lewis, who, who um, had she uh, ran the full term would have <laughs> whooped his ass. So. I mean, I miss Karen Lewis every day, but I really missed her on Saturday because she'd have told who wrote this thing. She'd have been all see. Okay, so I get your point, Kennedy. I really do. I, I he's the mayor now. He's not the leader of, of the movement. He's Mayor Brandon Johnson. And so he meets with all kinds of people, right? And they, uh, that's what a mayor does. So meeting with Rom, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I thought you were going to say meeting with him and tweeting about it are two different things. I mean, not just tweet about it, but th this tweet is the... I, this is where Carol would be laughing her ass off. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Emanuel. First of all, calling him Ambassador Emanuel. <laughs> I'm sorry. Calling him Ambassador. I know he literally is the ambassador, but you know what I mean? The elevation. Oh, you're the Ambassador Emanuel. No, he's Mayor Rahm. He's the guy who closed the 50 schools. It's not some foreign thing from a, another planet. You know, he is Mayor Rahm. For your continued leadership. So like that puff piece at the end, you know, if he had said something, listen, I didn't agree with this guy at all when he was the mayor, but as the mayor, I meet with everyone. And if this may get some jobs, I'll meet with Rom. How about that? Don't And then pick a joke about Karen. Don't hold it against me. All right. If he had done something like that, I would have said, okay, but that little puff piece at the end and he, and can it, this is what I'm going to say. I'll say, get your reaction to this. See, like someone like me or you, we follow politics obsessively and uh, we're, we're used to stuff like this. We kind of go with the flow. There's, I, I say this all the time. There's a reason why we have a 35% turnout, 36% on a good day in an election because totally. nothing matters. Nothing means these politicians say anything on any day, totally contradict what they said the day before. And how are you going to, how are you going to try to go out and knock doors for someone who just said that the man who buried the evidence in the Laquan McDonald uh, murder, like, deserves our praise for his continued leadership? You get what I'm saying, Ken? At some point, we lose credibility. Go ahead. 
Totally, totally. I mean, look, I, I want to unequivocally say, like, you will never hear me defending Rahm Emanuel. You know, um, I think what I what I'm naming is what I'm trying to name is I cannot speak for the mayor, his comms team. Um, what I can speak for is the fact that United Working Families is is building um, the the infrastructure and is born, frankly, out of the the infrastructure built um, for the very function of burying guys like Rahm Emanuel. And we will continue to ensure that folks are clear on you don't get to close 50 schools. You don't get to build a cop academy. You don't get to, you know, um, close down our mental health centers and not be held accountable. Um, and, 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 and so I, I don't want to curse on the air, but F Rahm Emanuel period, you know, and that's, okay. and that's, that's it. You're, you're uh, saying to Ram what he said to the great Karen Lewis, and then she told him off, Gad. I mean, uh, what he said to Karen Lewis and what he said to all the little black and Latina kids of the city, right? And everybody in a public house, ho- housing uh, development and everyone that went to a public school, right? He said F us. And, and so it's, you know, just kind of returning the energy. Uh, all right, let's move on from uh, Mayor Rahm. Probably healthy for me uh, to not revisit the, uh, the years <laughs> that he was mayor. Uh, and let's take a moment to uh, introduce uh, Kennedy Bartley uh, to our listeners. First time on the show. As I said, uh, she is now the executive director of United Working Families. United Working Families, folks who listen to the show, know that I just basically sum it up this way. Uh, the lefty political organization in the city of Chicago. Uh, Emma Tai was the executive director. She came on the show. And of course, her last appearance on the show, she was feeling pretty good, as Kennedy knows. Uh, that was right after, I think it was the primary of 2022 and uh, a bunch of lefties won on the north side of Chicago, northwest side of Chicago. She was feeling pretty good. She goes, I play to win. I just love that quote. <laughs> so, uh, Kennedy, do you play to win, too, when it comes to the game of politics? Yeah, man. I mean, like, we we can't we can't risk just going out there. What your buddy say? We can't risk just playing and lose weight. You know, like we, I, but seriously, you know, like I do this work because I, I feel the urgency of, of, of us winning, right? Like people don't have time for us to, you know, run these experiments without clear theories of change and without clear pathways to victory. And the way that we approach, you know, elections are like, we see them as structure tests. And I remember in those early days of even, you know, Brandon's race, we were clear about the fact that like, regardless of what happened electorally, we have to come out of this having built power in some meaningful way, right? Um, Because people cannot afford for us to stand still and for there not to be new infrastructure and new ways for people to your point that have largely been disaffected from politics. They're like, what's the point? Um, We we can't like, you know, at the end of it all, be like those conditions are the same. Um, I think a lot about like, why I do this work and where I come from, you know, that, that got me here. And I think about, you know, like my mom and my grandma, like two working class um, women who made sure that everybody around them, right. Regardless of if the government was providing it or not, um, were fed, had clothing, had houses, you know, or had, had a place to lay their heads. I think about my auntie Faye who, you know, whether she was getting assistance or not, like made sure that none of her children knew it. You know, um, 
I think about my little cousin Trayvon, who was 14 years old when he was murdered, you know, and it's like, it's too urgent for us to just be playing to play, right? Like we have to be playing to win because like the urgency is life or death. The conditions are life or death. The AQI is 256 and people are sitting sleeping outside, mm-hmm. right? Like they don't, they don't, they don't have the luxury of us just like doing politics to do politics. We do politics as electoral politics as a process win in this larger fight towards radically transforming these systems that have killed us, that have displaced us, um, that have dispossessed us. All right. Before we get into uh, that larger fight and what uh, you think should be on the agenda and the uh, in the immediacy, talk a little bit about what got you to this point in your life. We had a brief conversation about this before we went on the mic. Kind of an interesting story, in my humble opinion, uh, that that uh, the path that you followed to get here from Waukegan, Illinois, Loyola, and that Loyola thing just freaks me out. Uh, and uh uh, and to Chicago. So just uh, take us on that little journey. Yeah, yeah. So born and raised in Waukegan, um, also spent time in Jacksonville, Florida, where my, my dad and his side of the family is. And, you know, um, growing up, my dad uh, was incarcerated for like the for like seven years of my childhood. Um, and like the experience of you know, going to Jacksonville and then getting into the RV with my grandma and my great grandmother and driving for hours um, to to go see him. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of create these through lines towards like all the things that were kind of normalized as growing up in like a working class black um, family. Um, I later was kind of given language to like through organizing through through school and thinking about you know, that experience of, of visiting my father and, you know, uh, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore is like golden gulags talking about how they build prisons in the middle of nowhere to serve the function of like invisibilizing, forgetting people. Um, but of course, as a child, like I didn't have that politicization or that language. Um, and then, you know, um, um, I went to to school in Zion. So Waukegan, Zion, that area is just kind of like one big city. Um, unless you live there, then like the distinctions are important, you know. Um, but yeah, I remember my my eighth grade teacher like begging my mom, like, please, please, like just look into Loyola Academy. Like, you know, we got to figure out a way to send Kennedy there. Um, and so, yeah, like every day, three hours. I feel like like an old head, like, a, you know, like I walked my house, which too, you know, like I yeah. was on the Metro um, three hours every day going to Loyola um, just because like, you know, the conditions in Waukegan and Zion and Beach Park, um, you know, are much like what we see on the west and south sides of Chicago. Um, and so, you know, my mom um, made it happen, you know, as she tended to do growing up. Um, and and um for three and a half years i went to loyola and that experience was you know wild loyola you know it's in wilmette it's on the 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 rich part of the north shore lake county um and i'm going to school with like you know the jordan's kids went there like scotty pippen's kid some walgreens kid you know like wild but then i'm also going to school with folks who are also taking the train to and from school but they're coming from k-town or they're coming from you know like out south and so um yeah it was like it was a really interesting place um and 
I never thought that I would engage with like <laughs> big money that closely ever in my life. But like, yeah, those are some wealthy folks. Go on. I see. So I'm trying to picture this. Uh, and uh, so you would take that uh, Metro line uh, from Waukegan and take yeah. it, get off in downtown Wilmette. And then would you catch a bus? Yeah, we took the 425 bus, I believe. Yep. Uh, yeah, and uh, take it down. Cause so, ladies and gentlemen, I do it as in the t- out of my mind's eye. Uh, Loyola's campus is right off the highway, as as I remember it. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, so you would take that bus. So when you get to Loyola, uh, like, and I've never, I my ignorance, Kevin, I apologize. I've never been actually been to Loyola. I've just heard about Loyola. Like that makes to, perfect sense. Yeah, and like Loyola was like one of these. Loyola Rambler fans out there, I'm not hating on your school. I'm just saying this is what it was like going to Evanston High School. Like, we didn't like Loyola, or I didn't. We didn't like New Trier. I don't even like Oak Park. Don't get me started. But uh, uh, so was it like, did all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria at Loyola? Was, was there integration within the school? Yeah, actually, there was. There was. Um, it was like, I guess primal in the sense that like the cool kids sat with the cool kids and like, you know, it actually wasn't like that segregated. I mean, like the black folks definitely like stuck to, like we all knew each other and all were like homies and at the same time. Like it wasn't like, don't sit here, you're poor, you know, but um, it, that, that definitely expressed itself like in the sense that I didn't go to Lollapalooza every year, you know, or like, I like after school was like, I have to either go to track practice or basketball practice or make, make sure I make the train. Cause it's the Metro. And if I miss this one, I'm going to be sitting here by myself for an hour, you know? Um, but it was like a, it was a fascinating experience and I like feel really grateful for it. Um, it was also like very difficult, of course. Right. Like it's, it's an interesting time, like confronting like your class status class position for the first time um, and navigating that um at, at at that age um but there were really special connections made at Loyola like I think about Mrs. White and Mr. Phillips my my English teachers who like were so like deeply invested in like me doing well um and I like still like go get crepes with Mrs. White and like I still like get butterflies at the idea of and like impressing her or her being proud of me you know and like People like that matter. Um, it would have rocked not having to go like three hours every day to like experience it. But yeah. Um, and then, you know, eventually I end up in Chicago 2013 because um, I went to DePaul. And um, I remember 2014 is like when um, Michael Brown was murdered. And I just remember like on campus and then like, you know, DePaul's in the middle of the city. So like in the streets like folks were just like in mass protesting. And I remember like waking up so early and it just being purely off the adrenaline of like, oh my God, like folks are doing something about these conditions that have largely been normalized. And it's like young black folks doing it. And, you know, like, and, 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 you know, coming up organizing wasn't like, I, I could not define what organizing meant for you, you know, um, and I obviously like tangentially knew like the histories of people like Angela Davis or the Black Panthers, but just through like what we're taught in school, um, but then like really like 
my orientation to it wasn't it like as like a way to like win power or build power um and so like the empowerment um was like really really powerful for me um and then you know later on in 2014 um that spring um because at the time i was teaching in chicago public schools as well through this program um with depaul peacekeepers and cps i was like a restorative justice facilitator um and, and talking about violence interruption and pre prevention and uh, and rj practices and i remember walking through the quad um and my mom called me my freshman year and i was like leaving my 8 a.m um i think to go teach actually and my mom was like um you know Trayvon my little cousin 14 um who's like my little brother like they found him uh early this morning like he was he was murdered you know and it was like something about like this fact that like I was one you know super like activated and politicized around these police murders but like also downtown it's not like CPD was just like yeah y'all y'all protest like I was watching people get their asses beat like for peacefully like just like resist you know like pro protesting so something about like i think the compounded imagery of that that i hadn't necessarily processed compounded with like you know teaching young folks or working with young folks in cps and then with like my essentially my little brother like being murdered that like just felt so overwhelmingly like debilitating for me and so you know i continued to 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 work with cps um but then i just like really shifted the work that i do towards like policy and i did policy work around you know like the north lawndale school closures um and it wasn't until 2017 when i um started working at SEIU local one um and my you know luckily my markets were chicago but also detroit which was like so special in milwaukee um, it's different, you know, organizing and, and doing, you know, strategic research and right to work states. Um, and that was like another instance where it's like, yo, same conditions, but didn't have the language or like the political edge, you know, like growing up, I grew up, everybody that my, my dad, my grandpa worked in, um, Amco like factories. My grandma worked for Sears. My mom worked for the government. I did not know what a labor union was, you know, and then like ended up working for the union um i think that like the we were there was some political misalignment um i'll leave it at that that just like didn't necessarily like it was hard for me to express my my politics in full through the work i ended up meeting with stacy davis gates um she introduced me to emma ty and then 2019 happens february and the rest is history you know ufbf becomes my political home and my workplace um, and now I'm just so honored that this space that like, you know, kind of creates a home for like these politics that were never fully like realized, expressed, understood by myself, even um, like in this place. And, you know, now I'm the executive director of it. So that's that's it, you know, a, a, immense like pressure and responsibility, but also just like gratitude and pride in that. Yeah. Uh, what are the constant themes that. Uh... Of conversations I have with organizers, uh, younger organizers, is uh, my disbelief <laughs> that they've been as successful as they have been. Uh, I, I must concede that uh, I'm stunned every time a lefty wins anything <laughs> in the city of Chicago. Uh, and uh, so now we're at a, this moment at the Chicago City Council, uh, Kennedy, 
where I should be able to, to rattle off the exact number. I can't at the moment, but let's say there's like eight legitimate lefties in the Chicago city council. You may have the exact number uh, more. It could be more than eight. Uh, yeah, many more than eight. at this point. We could, we could argue like what's a legitimate lefty, but we'll leave right. that for a moment. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, but it's a possibility that um, there's enough votes in the Chicago city council to do something like raise the minimum wage uh, on workers in a restaurant industry where there's their tipped employees, which was like unthinkable five years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. These are things like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Sam Toy in the restaurant lobby. They'll, they'll kill that. That's like Tom Tony, Alderman of the, they'll yep. kill that. There's no way that's going. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I'm like watching this, like, are they going to get those 26, really only need 25, but are they going to get those 26 votes? Yeah. Uh, so what do you think the potential for growth is? Okay. We've got, let's say, I don't know what the number is for the sake of argument, let's say 15. Okay. Uh, progressive or whatever you want to call them. 18. 18. Okay. I'll take your word on it after the show. I'll double check. Just think about the progressive caucus. Okay. Please, I'm not saying everyone in that progressive caucus is "quote unquote" progressive, but yeah, hey, I'm I'm with you. There has been some real fun resurgence of the progressive caucus. Some folks yeah. that were like, "How did y'all stumble here?" have left, yeah. um, and a majority of the progressive caucus are UWF uh, members. Okay. All right, point is, let's say there's 18. What let's do you think? Say, let's say, what what's the ceiling on this? Do you, like have you, in your humble opinion, uh? tapped it is that it or is it potential for growth go ahead absolutely man i mean i think one the way that power functions it's like everyone wants to be a part of it you know and united working families is is a we we are building a party you know um in a way that like gives real expression and fully realizes like um, a, a pathway to victory for demands that folks have been making for decades that are like life affirming, life saving demands. Um, and I think that boldness um, gives room for folks to like express express um, their their politics in new ways. And you know, our political project is committed to running people from the rank and file. From, from our neighborhoods on the west and south sides, working class people for political office for the purposes of it being a, like one of the arenas that we will contest for real transformational victories. Um, and so absolutely, we will, we believe that governing power requires us to contest across multiple arenas, right? And one of those arenas is electoralism. Um, and so we will continue to contest for power until we have power for our communities, right? Enough power to make things like treatment, not trauma, um, which would reopen the mental health centers and move CPD out of responding to mental health, mental health crises, excuse me, and things like bring Chicago home, which will force um, folks who can afford to buy million dollar homes to pay more in taxes so that no one is unhoused. Um, we're gonna make things like that the floor, right? Like, and we are creating new ceilings and how exciting is it to be a part of transformation? Um, and especially if you are an elected official that comes from the neighborhoods most dispossessed, most devastated and, and, um, and divested from, that you are in a position um, 
where you get to organize and legislate under conditions that you have created through your through your demands, but also through your pain, right? A Jeanette Taylor actually gets to legislate as the chair of the education committee because the conditions that she and others created when they did a hunger strike to keep diet open is what won us the fifth floor, right? Like there is something really powerful about that, almost spiritual about that. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, you know, it. I, I, I'm, I'm like, why, why wouldn't we continue to, to win power um, for people like my grandma and my mom and Jeanette Taylor, you know, and Angela Clay um, and Byron Ticho Lopez and, you know, and I love all of y'all. So don't get upset and see your names, but you know, like it's, it's like, this is a, a, a life affirming and life-saving project that we're doing. You know, it's like, we're playing to win. Yeah. All right. So when you think about playing to win, uh, are you, uh, is there a pragmatic side of you uh, that says, I will allow uh, a a certain amount of latitude for uh, a candidate running an award uh, that doesn't lean left? So there could be uh, consequences at the ballot box if they're too radical. Uh, but this person would be an improvement over whoever's in the seat right now. So I will tolerate a certain amount of latitude. Uh, is that how you operate? I think that the the hypotheticals are difficult without knowing what you mean um, or like exactly what, what, you know, what you're thinking of. What I will say is, you know, I think that like if if the last even couple of years are, is it shows us anything, it's that. People don't believe in centrism. People do believe in in bold ideas, right? The election of Brandon Johnson is not, you know, despite his public safety platform, it's because of it, because he was up against an FOP back challenger. You know, our governor, J.B. Pritzker being back in office is not, despite the fact that he leaned into the pre-trial fairness act, it's because of it. You know, like people recognize that we are in an urgent moment right? Like this is late stage capitalism throwing everything it has, knowing that it has more at us. And we have to respond in bold and visionary ways. You know, I think that the question you're asking, I could, I can conceptualize it, it more as folks are, are governing, um, because I do think that what will be required is the recognition that we won't liberate ourselves through legislation. And at the same time, we must be bold and be honest about when we have won the, the, the most that we can win and we have to continue to organize to create the conditions to win more. Um, you know, the thing that I say to myself often um, is, is, you know, don't be so eager to be offended, recognizing, you know, like narcissism, the narcissism of small differences leads to, to the, you know, like to boring conformities. And so like, as organizers, we have to be clear that yes, this is urgent. Yes, it is our responsibility to organize for bolder visionary things because our neighborhoods and our communities rely on it. And like outside of electoralism, like what are the other contestations that we need to be making, right? So. All right, uh, I was gonna follow up with what I call the Terry Cosgrove question. So I'm gonna put that over here. Don't let me forget asking it because I got gotta it. come back at something you said. The narcissism of small differences. I wrote that down. What do you mean by that? I think that, you know, we can have tendencies um, when, when we're fighting for things for so, so long, 
or when we, you know, and which requires us to be on the defense, almost requires us to be reactionary, right? Um, we can have the tendency of believing that the demand exactly as we have articulated it is the thing. And anything outside of that thing is, is woefully um, se- like, you know, selling out yeah. or woefully. And it's like, we have to remain disciplined enough to reground ourselves in the why we do this work, right? If we say that we are doing the thing to house people, whether or not they call it this or that, did we house people, right? That is going to be critical in this moment. And I think that like what is actually required from the us lefties, as you call us, you know, is, mm-hmm. is though there has been like a uh, understandable distrust and mistrust of electoralism, I actually think that we have to be disillusioned by what it means to win a seat. Winning a seat isn't enough, right? We have to sustain the power that we win and we have to contest for for transformation inside of, outside of, and against the state still, Mm -hmm. right? We have to have multi-pronged strategies. And so we can't, you know, live and die on the hill of how do we, are, are we legislating ourselves towards housing everyone? Are we organizing towards housing everyone and using legislation as a lever, mm-hmm. um, but not getting caught up on, you know, not recognizing when we, when we have won. Yeah. I, um, I get you what you're saying. Uh, and uh, I'm with you on that one, hundred uh, percent. All right. Now the Terry Cosgrove. So Terry Cosgrove comes old friend of mine. I've known him forever. He comes on the show uh, all the time. He's coming on actually in a couple of days. Uh, for years, he was the head of Personal Pact, which was the leading uh, reproductive rights uh, organization in the state of Illinois. And I always give them credit uh, for the fact that Illinois has reproductive rights. They're ferocious. And they play the end. They take it. They're like Emma Ty. They play the game to win. TC play. He's he's no, he's no longer there. He retired, but he played the game to win. And totally. his attitude about reproductive rights, and I, it was like, this is our position. If you're not with us on all these, we're not with you. They did not play around. Totally. And and but then we would have these arguments like he would then tell me that uh, like there's some centrist Democrat that I, I should be supporting because uh, they're better than the um, the opposition and they're pro choice. And I'm like, why is it that you're allowed to have my way or the highway attitude about uh, reproductive rights? But I'm not allowed to have a my way or the attitude, highway attitude about, I don't know, union rights or minimum wage. Why do I always have to trim my sales, but you get to be, this is it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm totally 100% for reproductive rights. Don't get me wrong, Kennedy. But the, you get this the distinction? It's like <laughs> he gets to be, you know... <laughs> Mr. They like parental notification, everything. They got to support everything, mm-hmm. you know, and and I give them credit because that's how they win. All right. Yeah. So help me out here, uh, Kennedy. Why is there a distinction between like issues uh, such as uh, uh, reproductive rights and minimum wage? The distinction about being able to be steadfast 
purist, non-negotiable about reproductive rights, but not that way with minimum wage. Or, or any kind of social issue, like monetary, anti, you would call it anti-capitalism issue. You know what I'm saying? Minimum wage, right to strike, unionization, uh-huh. Starbucks workers have the right to unionize. Go yeah. down a list of all the uh, uh, raising the taxes on the wealthy and progressive taxes as opposed oh, sure, to yeah. this regressive taxation that we have here in Chicago. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I reject the premise though, Ben. Like, I, I don't think that like, I don't think that we are single issue people. I don't think that we have single issue problems. Um, and I, I think that we have to be bold and, and recognize the intersectionality of all of like the, the fights and all of the struggles, right? Like it's not enough to go hard at housing, but not go hard at schools, right? At the same time that they were radically transforming, you know, or creating like the the BS plan for transformation, they were shutting down schools, right? So the same kids whose housing was being knocked down, they were also being told, oh, your school's also closing, you know? Like we have to, we, it is our responsibility, it's incumbent on us to, to fight in ways that reflect the intersectionality of our struggles, right? Um, and, and so I, I, don't, I don't necessarily, I mean, I, I understand as an organizer, particularly folks who have been fighting and organizing under like the conditions of just like, just wanton state violence and neoliberalism and all these things, like folks do feel a sense of defensiveness and, you know, scarcity, frankly, around like their issues. Um, But I think it's, it's our responsibility to be abundant, recognizing that unless you agree with the premise that there is a pie, um, that there is enough for all of us, when we tax the rich, right, when we when we meaningfully invest in communities and move out of this, you know, like reactionary addiction on policing and surveillance and prisons and all of those things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the idea that, you know, go hard about people being able to have abortions, but not people getting, you know, twenty five dollars an hour. I, I, I think that that's I, I don't I don't see it because, you know, how are you going to pay for the abortion if you're not making twenty five dollars an hour? Yeah. No, I, I, I'm with you. I, um, I think, and actually I, I, Terry would probably agree to a lot of things you just said, but the way he ran that organization was like, this was our issue. This was, this is our, our only issue. And totally. he used to make fun of me for tiffs. Cause I, I always be right about how unfair they were. And, mm-hmm. and he'd go, you and your tiffs. I go, well, that's an important issue. You know, there's other issues totally. besides reproductive rights. And, um, all right. So what are uh, let's run through a few of them uh, okay. if, if, that you would hope, like maybe in the next year or so uh, to pass uh, in, here in the city of Chicago or at least be uh, forcefully addressed and come close to passing. Go ahead. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that off the bat, we need the peace book. Right. Like youth led violence, interruption and prevention. Um, and, and which creates a presence in neighborhoods. Um, I, I think that we need to move away from, we, we have to stop um, believing that surveilling our communities will create any meaningful public safety. All it does is lean into, you know, scare tactics and like these false, um, the, the, these false promises of creating safety. Um, so that means no more shot spotter. I think that we have to, we have to make sure that we're doing treatment, not trauma right away. Um, because 
people's lives are depending on it. And also treatment, not trauma is the floor. We need networks of care um, that go beyond just moving policing out of out of mental health crises, right? Because that's just like so common sense. We Surely we can go bolder. Um, uh, so yeah, bring Chicago, we need bring Chicago home to make sure that we are housing the 60,000 plus houseless folks in Chicago, despite the fact that Chicago has more than 60,000 vacant homes. And we especially need to do it before the DNC because like the way that people like to invisibilize poor and black and Latine and working class people, um, I am terrified about what's gonna happen for the people who are on the street, who, who, who dare be on the street, you know, when, when the DNC is here. Um, so, so those are the things, and I, I think, oh man, so urgently, like we have to get rid of the, the the sacrifice zones and do the cumulative impact ordinance to create real, um, uh, get closer to a real Green New Deal for Illinois, um, and 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 ensure the fact that you know the city shut down when there was an AQI of two hundred fifty six, right, and people couldn't breathe. There are communities that every day experience what it's like to be breathing in dirty air and drinking unclean water. Um, and so, you know, we won't have an earth to organize on if we don't move towards Green New Deal. Um, and once we do all of those things, you know, I want to see us like have public or social housing for all. You know, I want to make sure there is a just transition um, so that we have green jobs and young people have full employment and live in a city that they feel like loves them, you know, and their parents have good jobs too. Um, I think that what we are seeking to do, what we must seek to do is like radically transform the city to ensure that Chicago is an oasis um, for, for safety and for the ability to thrive across communities. What did you mean by the get rid of sacrifice zones? You know, I think that there are areas in the city that just like get like where it's like, yeah, put the coal plant there, you know, put the metal shredder there. Um, and I, I think that, you know, with the leadership of groups like, you know, the, the Southeast Task Force and the folks who organized to stop General Iron and, you know, um, amazing, amazing organizers like Olga Batista and Jung Yoon, um, who have been sounding the alarm on environmental justice issues and, and environmental racism, right? Like that's where it goes back to those intersectional, it's incumbent on us to create intersectionality in our demands. This is both racist and it's like, and we can't breathe from the air, you know, um, and an environmental issue. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, well, since you mentioned it, I'll, I'll bring this up. Every guest gets this question and I have to guess, get the question. They're like, Ben, you're the only one who ever asked this question. I'm like, well, um, <laughs> I guess that makes me. So you grew up in Waukegan and now you yep. live in Chicago. And at the moment, Chicago and Waukegan are among the cities competing for the right to have the Bears operate uh, in their uh, in their towns. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, your thoughts on Bear Stadium? Would you uh, rather see it in your hometown of Waukegan, uh, your new town of the city of Chicago, or you just absolutely do not care in any way about the Chicago Bears? Go. What I would like to see is this fight about where do the Bears go create solidarity across cities and us saying we're not going to let you guys choose the city that gives you the most public subsidies because we're not going to give you public subsidies what we're all going to consistently demand is that you invest in our children's sports programs right 
that you create jobs for people who live around here, that you ensure that there is a CBA so that anyone in a certain radius of the stadium being built doesn't get displaced for their homes. And with all of those demands, uniform across all of the cities, y'all say where y'all want to go. You know what I mean? Like, it's ridiculous. Like, the, what, what are we fighting for? You know, like, like who? Yeah, it, it, it's this creates and I, it makes me think of like the, the strikes right now that I was telling you earlier that I just like, just give me chills, you know, it, like this is yet another opportunity for us to create the solidarity um, in, in organization and in class solidarity, you know, um, to to be like, we're not going to fight for scraps or fight for the recognition of like billionaires or sports teams. What we're going to do is create a standard of what working families and working people need and demand and require and, you know, be more concerned with poor people finding a home here, right? And, and you know, uh, undocumented folks finding a home here and not fighting to keep Ken Griffin and whoever else like wants to leave because they're being t- finally asked to pay their fair share. So that's how uh, I feel about the Bears yeah, State. That, that is good. <laughs> I I like that. That was what what. Uh, by the way, it goes what you just outlined goes completely against uh, how planning departments in, in every city uh, in the state okay. of Illinois operate, and essentially it's a Hunger Games. So like, oh, if we could get the Bears to come here as opposed to Waukegan, we win. Who cares about Waukegan? I'm like, well, wait a minute. There's a lot of good people that live in Waukegan. Who cares about, you know, like, oh, this is a win for the city of Chicago. We got this company to move its headquarters from, I don't know, fill in the blanks, Deerfield to Chicago. What a win for Chicago. What about Deerfield? I'm like, it's totally. Everybody against I remember one of the first TIF deals that Daily did with the LaSalle Central uh, TIF District. Kennedy, this is when you were still in high school. And he he got he used public's money to induce uh, a company from Milwaukee to move to Chicago and cranes and the trip. They acted like it was a big deal. And I'm like, what what was gained by that? I Yep. Yep. We, we need we need new measures of success. You know, and one of the fascinating things about growing up in Chicago, I mean, in Waukegan, sorry, which is an excerpt, you know, is I remember so distinctly when uh, they imploded Cabrini Greens because, like, we started having so many friends that we would call Chi Town because all of the families that were displaced from Chicago's like attack on public housing came to Waukegan, came to North Chicago came to Zion, you know? And so when folks are so provincial or myopic, you know, of like, you know, forget Waukegan, we want this thing or free. It's like, yo, like what y'all are doing in Waukegan is going to probably impact the residents that you're going to ultimately displace from where you are now, you know? And we're not going to do that, of course, because we're organizing for transformation and we, you know, have, have one of our own in office, but it's, it's, yeah, it's so important. And like the, Obviously, I'm biased, but like kind of like the forgotten suburbs and forgotten exurbs um, feels like some organizing malpractice, you know, um, because they the the way that capital functions is they invisibilize poor people and black people and yada, yada. And they push marginalized people to the margins, to the margins, to the margins. Waukegan is a margin, you know, North Chicago is a margin. 
Zionism margin. And if we care about working class people and poor people, we must go where they are, you know, and where they're being pushed to. Well, I uh, let's get to those strikes, because I think we're beyond where we are with the stage of uh, 21st century capitalism beyond uh, hammering away at the marginalized people that we don't want to see. We're going after the middle class. And I say this all the time on the mic. It's just when I watch, like, for instance, the strike with the actors in Hollywood and the uh, script writers in Hollywood, those are strong middle class jobs, upper middle class jobs. And if the studios get their way, those will be marginalized jobs. Totally. You know, and I'm like, I don't see any restraint on the i don't see a sign that the folks in charge are making all the money have any restraint i talked about this last week and i'll bring in it but this is on my mind right now i'm a you know i'm a sports junkie mm-hmm. you're gonna learn that about me and i just finished reading black ball and i cannot urge everybody to read it uh teresa runstyler was on the show last week the author great book about the 1970s nba and the struggle that black players had to make the NBA treat them with respect, pay them the money they deserve. And mm-hmm. you, you look at these superstars in the NBA now, you, it, it was a fight. Yeah. And, it, and it was kicking and screaming by the owners. Every totally. step of the way, Kennedy complained. They don't have the money. The yep. players are unrealistic. They're going to destroy the league. And yep. they, they had to go to court, you know, and I urge everybody to read Black Ball. If you're any, if you're a basketball fan or like a a student of labor history so here's my question it seems it's like the the players through a combination of lawsuits uh threats of strikes even and um just the growth of the sport were forced the owners to change you think we're in that process now with these other industries like forcing the people who own the companies, Starbucks and uh, Amazon and uh, UPS, and, and the list goes on and on, forcing them, kicking and screaming and totally. complaining and whining every step of the way to save the middle class. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Are we forcing? Yeah, we're forcing them. You know, like the, the function of capitalism, capitalism is expansion, right? Expanding into markets that don't even creating markets out of nothing, right? Like expand, expand, expand. And there is no moral consciousness of, of capital, right? And so until you move this like soulless machine to almost become aware of itself, everything's going to stay the same. And so the way that you move a machine to become aware of itself is UPS workers say, you know what? We make the world tick. You know, we are living in an e-commerce age. In 1997, I think it was when they last uh, strike. And obviously like the the e-commerce world and how we were, you know, like markets were just different. And even then they were like, this is kind of bad. Like this is pretty disruptive. And now, you know, like almost, you know, 30 years later, they're doing it at a time where 
Amazon workers who likely would be asked to scab are also like having really major and powerful worker actions, but also just logistically don't have the capacity to meet the need. USPS doesn't have capacity to meet the need because when we were sounding the alarm about needing like real funding for a government agency, everyone was like, ah, whatever, you know, um, FedEx doesn't have the capacity. So yeah, we are going to literally workers. I say we, because I believe, I mean, I am in solidarity with every worker everywhere are going to make the world stop, you know? Um, and this will be, if UPS goes on strike, I believe one of the, is the largest single employer strike ever, right? Like we are living in the midst of historic impacts of late stage capitalism. And also I believe capitalism is, you know, creates its own grave diggers. And that's what's happening. It, you know, like the the petty luxuries and conveniences we're trying to like we we are forced to believe make the acceptance and swallowing of these conditions worth it. People are like, I actually don't know if it's that important for me to have like a rob robot that cleans my floor. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I want to be paid well. You know, like I, I want dignity and respect on the job. And so yeah, I think that this is major, you know, and if CTU is any model of what happens when workers that make the world go round strike, you know, folks are going to be forced to pay attention. And especially with globalization too, like the impact this is going to have internationally. I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day, Ben, but yeah, I'm, I'm stoked about it. And, you know, solidarity to the UPS workers, strike, striking actors, uh, you know, writers, Starbucks worker, like this is a big time. Yeah. And I think that it's like any lefties, you know, um, wild yeah, no. dreams. So. Uh, capitalism creates its own grave diggers. We're out of time, but you just got to give a, a little riff on what you mean by that. I mean, like <laughs> capitalism forces young, poor, black, Latine folks to join the military because it's the only way that you're going to get a good job and see the world. They train you and how to, you know, shoot guns and be tactical, you know, all for the purposes of, 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 of capital, right. Of expansion. Um, at the same time, there's sometimes our, 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 uh, military folks who defect from the U S military and they stand on the front lines and defend water protectors, right. That is capitalism creating its own grave diggers. Capitalism creates the conditions by which people are like, I literally cannot live unless I resist the conditions under which I am being forced to live in, live in, right? Capitalism is making life so unbearable that the very folks who make it go, make it tick, can't even make their own lives go, make their own lives tick. And they're being forced to say like, no, I'm done enough is enough, you know, um, you know, capitalism ha has the function of using policing, um, as the, the muscle of racial capitalism, right. And using cages as ways to socially control and put away excess labor and all of these other things. Right. And folks sit in there and then you see, you know, the George Jackson's of the world and all of the, the, the folks on the inside who organize themselves to resist these systems that have wrongfully treated the cattle, them, you know, and, and, and given them, you know, less, less rights than animals. And so I think that capitalism creates the, the conditions where folks, um, have no choice but to join the ranks of people fighting for freedom and, and resisting everywhere. Um, 
so yeah wow exciting times uh, yeah they are exciting times i'm glad i'm uh, around to watch them and uh kennedy bartley uh thank you for coming on my show best of luck to you as you continue this fight uh thank going you, forward and i know you will be back on my humble right. little show right sure will be can't wait man all right very good thank you so much kennedy uh that's thank kennedy you. bartley and i also want to thank producer chris doing an outstanding job as he always does i'm sure kennedy will agree when i say hey producer chris give yourself a raise take it out of petty cash peace and love everybody and remember you can always download previous ben jarofsky shows get benny j bonus interviews and so much more all at chicagoreader.com follow the ben jarofsky show on instagram at benny j show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show podcast on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.